You're listening to the Science of the Local podcast with me, Hamish Clark. This episode, we chat with Professor Gareth Denyer from the University of Sydney. Gareth's an expert on metabolism, diabetes, uh, biochemistry. Uh, he's a great teacher, former teacher of mine, and an alumnus from the very first Science at the Local event. Please enjoy. Science is real from the Welcome to the Science of the Local podcast. Thank you. Maybe we could start by uh, you offering us a, a dry 50-word bio of, uh, of who you are and what you do, oh, and then we can do a deep dive after that. sort of statement. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, I, I'm a, uh, in, a metabolist by trade, so I, I did my, my undergraduate um, and postgraduate work in metabolism and specifically looking at uh, how the organs of the body decide what fuel they're going to oxidize. So given a choice of fuels like carbohydrate and fat, mm-hmm. how, do they, how do they make a decision about what, what fuels they, they should oxidize? And that, of course, cuts into diabetes and obesity. So for Several decades, I started to get interested in in how the the body decides what type of fuel to store, as well as to oxidise, mm-hmm. and then what the consequences of that are. So, in obesity, for example, when we store too much fat, um, it causes our fat cells to start misbehaving, and instead of just being these nice little benign uh, organs that or cells that uh, sequester away fat for a rainy day, they start to misbehave by secreting a, a wide range of inflammatory compounds, mm-hmm. and it's those inflammatory agents that eventually cause the heart disease and the type two diabetes that we know are as- associated with being overweight. Mm-hmm. So what? I'm interested in from a research perspective is what is it that triggers the fat cells to start behaving like mm-hmm. their their immune cells and okay. start secreting this cocktail of nasties and uh, what can we do to calm them down a little bit why you know why why do they do it in the first place and what would it take to to stop them from behaving badly in this way mm-hmm. because you know, really, the the battle against obesity is one which is going to be very difficult to win from a sort of social cultural point of view. Um, the, the the fact that we live in this environment where we all have access to unlimited amounts of amazingly beautiful food mm. all day every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, even on the campus at the University of Sydney, <laughs> I can I can eat. Uh, That's saying uh, something. Uh, 12, 12 different, you know, variety, cultural varieties of really beautiful food, and that's. Let me tell you, I say that. <laughs> I say that without a hint of irony. Yeah. Um, and so, so really, what I'm interested in is is more not how can we stop people from overeating, but mm. how can we deal with the, the how can we quell the consequences of of that. Mm. 
So uh, certainly not a simple uh, topic, but you've uh, described it very simply. Thank you. Uh, how much would you say the questions have changed over the years? Um, I feel like uh, at least for 10 years, maybe 20, I've been hearing people talk in the media about obesity and the West is obese, but surely it wasn't always that way. When did we kind of stumble onto some of these um, uh, issues? Well, I mean, really, the uh, obesity up until about 100 years ago was seen as a really good thing. If you if you mm-hmm. look at any pictures of um, society from mm-hmm. over 100 years ago, the aristocrats and the well-to-do are always depicted as being very portly and and, and as a sign of their affluence, that, that they mm-hmm. board a, a rich smorgasbord of food Whereas the the lower classes were, are always depicted as being waif like and tasty yeah, uh, and, mm. and ill, and it was only mm. it, it's really quite a modern phenomenon that we've been we've started to associate being obese as being a bad thing, both from the point of view of health, but also of of aesthetic appearance. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, really, it's, it's not until the last 40 to 50 years that we've had this incredible availability of, of takeaway food, um, cheap food. I mean, food is, is, so, is, is just such an incredible, um, incredibly available thing for all of us now. Yeah. Um, and, and the irony is, of course, that the really high-calorie stuff is the cheapest so your burgers and your pizzas and your chips and things Mm. um, which are terribly easy to eat (laughs) and uh, are also the cheapest things whereas if you want to buy fresh strawberries and salad then then yeah it's a bit more effort it's a lot more effort it's a lot more cost Mm -hmm. and i mean shane ward of course was famous (laughs) for observing that he doesn't want to eat an apple. He wants a cheeseburger because a cheeseburger is much more satisfying. And, and it's, it's, it's really, really the people that are feeding their kids strawberries and, and, you know, salads and things are, are both have to have the, the financial wherewithal to do that. Mm-hmm. And they have to have the time to do that and mm. have the discernment to do that. And you you can totally forgive anybody for mm. it's a lot easier for me to bung a few chips in the oven or go down to the burger place and or you know buy a pizza at the famous chain for five dollars. Yeah, I mean you can't even buy a punnet of strawberries for five dollars. <laughs> so so you know the factors that are involved in the great obesity epidemic that we're we're suffering are due to a, a range of financial, socio-economic education mm-hmm. which are way beyond the purview of the, the mere metabolic bias. The humble metabolist. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I suspect it's the case for many research disciplines, but it's hard to uh, to avoid all of these messy social and socio-economic and political factors, um, both because of pressure to demonstrate that you're having an impact, but also because whatever it is you're studying may well be influenced by those things as well. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, but of course, uh, modern advances in 
computing, artificial intelligence, surveillance, you know, data collection, data availability, all of these things will help unravel that incredible labyrinth of connections that, well, that, yeah. that, that are interrelating the, the biochemistry to the, to the, the social network, the, the socioeconomic stuff. Yeah, well, I was going to ask because the the, the explosion in availability of, of cheap calories, if you like, over the last 40 or 50 years has been uh, mirrored by an explosion in, I guess, advances in, in the methods of molecular biology, uh, gene sequencing, uh, protein studies, imaging. Uh, I've, I've forgotten it all. My undergrad days are a long time ago. But, um, uh, yeah, could you comment at all on, on the rapid changes that we're seeing in in, I guess, the science and, and technology that helps to drive it? Well, we, we, we're still some way away from being able to integrate all of the intelligence that is, is coming in, both mm. from the very large epidemiological studies that are done formally, mm -hmm. and then, of course, the intelligence that you gather from people's daily habits, you know, the supermarket inventory, um, what people are buying at the fast food shops, what they're looking at on the web, what recipes they're, they're making at home. So all of, all of the things that could be brought together um, are starting to be assembled and now, of course, require the, the data analytics skills to put them together. Mm. That's, of course, just on the, the population level. We start to integrate in people's gene sequences and and our knowledge of what is happening at the cellular level with metabolism. Then, mm. yeah, you know, I mean the the the, the, <laughs> the algorithms are, uh, get get so complex that it it would be enough to blow anybody's mind. Yeah, we live in an era where um, the you know the chess was solved by. <laughs> Computer that I can't remember the name. Deep of. Blue. Oh uh, no, no, the, no. the one that um, as recently, where they, it was, it, it's, it isn't really even a, a traditional computer in the sense it's actually just some arti artificial intelligence algorithms. Mm. Um, Alpha, Alpha Zero, I think it's called. Okay. And, and this is the computer that um, they basically just told it the rules of chess mm -hmm. and said, "Go for your life." Have a play. So, um, so that so they didn't. It's very very different to what they did with Deep Blue, where they okay. actually programmed all that's known about chess, right? A human perspective. You know, these are the openings. These are the strategies. These okay. is the end game. This is what you have to do to win a game of chess. And these are the, when you're looking ahead and planning the moves. These are the things that you need to take into consideration. Mm -hmm. Whereas with um, Alpha Zero, and do do excuse me if I've got. We'll, uh, we'll post a link on the website uh, afterwards. What that did was they simply said, "Here are the rules. This is what you. This is the general thing you want to accomplish. You want to get you know get the opposition's king. Mm -hmm. This is how your pieces move. These are some of the finer points of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. Now you go off and play in the sand mm -hmm. and work mm -hmm. out what would make a good winning strategy." You know what? What? How would you deploy your pieces to to win? How how might a game unfold? Hmm. And so it did that. And in a recent battle off against the the, the most the most recent iteration of 
the classic chess computers like okay. deep, it 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 beat them 97 times out of 100 wow but what's really really fascinating is that all the chess grandmasters are really excited because this thing plays like an alien would play right it, okay. it's completely rewritten the strategy book it's doing crazy things like sacrificing <laughs> pieces to gain an advantage in 20 moves time and mm -hmm. can see with crystal clarity these strategic uh operations mm -hmm. which just which the the deep blue can't do because it it's been constrained by the way the humans think about mm -hmm. it yeah that's and, fascinating but what's the punchline to all of this is not just that. It's that, guess how long it took the uh, Alpha Zero to solve chess? Oh, I'm afraid to ask. Okay. What four, about a few, a few weeks? Hours. Sorry? Four hours. Oh, dear. Yeah. So, <laughs> so <laughs> coming back to the... I mean, I don't know quite what four hours means in that context. Sure, sure. Because, you know, I'm sure that it wasn't, you know... At time zero, they said these are the rules, and four hours later, it defeated chess. I mean, I'm sure yeah, it's probably yeah. a bit more padding on the either mm -hmm. side. But, but um, and this was reported in Nature at the end of last year. Okay. You know, a very recent thing, very mm -hmm. worth, well worth looking at. But the key thing is, of course, that it what it shows us is that we will have the capability of integrating all of that intel that we talked about a moment ago from the very high epidemiological level down to the genetic metabolic level and the artificial intelligence routines will do that in a way that are un inconceivable to us mm -hmm. that, you know, we won't even be we'll, we'll, we'll kick them off <laughs> and, 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 they'll, and they'll do their they'll, they'll do their imaginative sort of uh, extrapolations and making the connections and things. So yeah, very very different. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, all of that is going to be dependent on that data mm -hmm. being available and accessible and structured in a way that the artificial intelligence machines can can do something with. Right. Yeah. There's a few steps between the rules of chess and the rules of uh, life, if you like. Yeah. But it, but but it brings me to something else that I, I wanted to discuss with you today, and that is mm. the whole idea of the framework of publishing, which has been um, scientific publishing, is which has been around for you know a lot, the last 150 years or so, mm -hmm. and which hopefully will break the shackles of the the old-fashioned ways of of disseminating information. Um, so where does it need to go, and what are the well, issues now? Um, so, uh, I mean, as your your listeners would would probably know, the bedrock of scientific publication and communication over the last 150 years has been the idea of publication in a peer-reviewed journal. Mm -hmm. So that I, I do some work, you know, I find out that fat cells. Um, go crazy when when they get bigger. I I want the scientific community in the world to know about that. What do I do? I write it all up and I send it to a journal. And that journal then decides whether or not they think my work is of high enough merit to publish. 
both from the point of view of has the science been done properly and and also from the point of view is my work of sufficient importance to make mm -hmm. it to their esteemed yes. Um Now that's a model that's been around for 150 years and has served the community as best it can but it is important to realize that it imposes some very strong filters on my work getting out. And it's just not, and I say my work, but I, what I mean is that anybody's data may, it stands a good chance of not ever seeing the light of day yeah. because of this peer review process. And in a totally pure world, uncontaminated by human, um, <laughs> Foolishness. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of prejudices and things that, mm. you know, that would, and, and with reviewers that um, were focused and intelligent and capable, that would be a, a, a reasonable system. Um, but of course, what it does is it's, it means that there is lots and lots and lots of data that has been done perfectly perfectly well, which is not seeing the light of day because these filters are getting in the way. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to realize that these filters are only there because of very archaic reasons. So 150 years ago, if you wanted to get your work published, that was a big deal because, yeah. because you had to find a publisher who had a printing press, <laughs> and not just a printing press, but was willing to invest in the paper and the ink and then the distribution costs of getting your article out there. Mm. Had to find people who would sell it, so booksellers and public um, places of distribution had to exist. So a whole infrastructure around the collation, printing, distribution and sale of Printed material had to mm. had to exist in order for you to be published. Now that was a big ask, you know. That was involved transport, it involved resources, it involved lots and lots of staff. It's no wonder that the the publishing industry were were pretty picky about what they would publish. You know, it mm. was only worth publishing stuff that was going to be going to have a high impact. And, uh, and was going to be useful. But now, none of that exists. It is, it is easier for me to publish data that the rest of the world can see a microsecond later mm. than it's ever been before. In fact, it's trivial. Mm. So the question is, all of those barriers to publication, they just simply, they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So we need a better way of of removing those up those filters that used to exist because they're not they're not helpful anymore. They're just getting in the way of data that the scientific community should be able to see, should be able to appraise. Hmm. Um, it's stopping them from seeing all that. And it's it's very important to realise as well that when you send a paper out to a, a journal and it gets Peer reviewed. What that actually means is that <laughs> listeners, there were some uh, some scare quotes there. There were some scare quotes. <laughs> the, 
what that actually means is that you that your paper has gone to one or two other people yeah. who hopefully will be in your field, yeah. but they're, they're busy people. They're, hopefully won't bear a grudge against you. They, they, may or may, they may or may not like what they see before them. It may support their ideas. It may refute their ideas. They may like you. They may dislike you. They may be busy. They may be lazy. They, they have a full range of human traits, which yes. means that they're not going to objectively evaluate what's put in front of them as purely as you would hope they would. Mm. But even if they did, they're only two people. Mm. They shouldn't have the right to stop you, the, the data that you've obtained from being available for the inspection and criticism of the rest of the scientific community. Okay. So that's uh, so what what we have now of course with people using electronic notebooks to to uh, harvest their daily activities uh, within their laboratories um, is the ability for data to be made transparently available to everybody. Mm as soon as it is collected. Mm -hmm. So the dream is that you and your listeners can come into the laboratory notebooks that, that myself or my colleagues might be keeping their data in. Yep. You can come in and look at those and comment on them and give suggestion or just lurk and look at the data mm -hmm. um, 24 hours a day, if mm -hmm. that's turned you on. <laughs> uh, and so, in other words, rather than waiting for the, the, the researcher to, to do all the analysis and package everything up and make it look beautiful for a paper, mm. the, the world community of scientists can go in and look at the data of their colleagues as it's being produced and give suggestion for, mm -hmm. I think you should do these controls. I, I think you need a new calibration curve for your machine. I think, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, this data looks quite interesting, but have you thought of adding that condition? Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's so that we've got this 24-7 discussion going on around everybody's data and everybody's thoughts that transcends this constrained, old-fashioned publication system. Mm -hmm. Because once you make the data available like that, Suddenly, then the artificial intelligence algorithms can come in and have access to it, putting it all together. You know, even beyond the the what the humans are suggesting. So there's certainly a move towards um, open data, if you like, and uh, you know, even governments publishing their data. And, yes, that's um, right. And there's some uh, some interesting models. I don't know well where people can pre-publish, if you like, things they're working on and get comments. Yes. So what are you saying that's out there now or signs pointing towards a change? Yes, so uh, you, you hit the nail on the head, Hamish. Uh, there, there are already pre-publication servers which allow um, scientists to write up their work and, and basically put it, put it out there for the community to see and comment on even before it's officially published. Yeah. And of course, um, I had a I had a recent experience with this. Um, we we put our work on the Bio um, XRV server, 
mm -hmm. um, which is a which is a server particularly designed for to accept um, molecular biology and biochemistry sort of papers. Mm -hmm. um, and we we got a number of comments, and and it was you know tweeted around a bit because it was mm -hmm. it was quite interesting stuff. Um, and then after a while, I realised that actually that was good enough for me that because it, it was out there, no one else can scoop this work. Mm. Yes, it isn't an official publication as far as the university is concerned. It's not mm. right on their measures of esteem. Yes, but I'm old enough and <laughs> <laughs> close enough to retirement that I don't really care so much about that. Right. What I care about is getting getting the data out there and getting it out there about these characteristics of fat cells. Now, you know, as I say, I can't. No one can scoop me now. They can't do this work and publish it and claim that they had the idea and, and mm. it was there. It's so unprotected from that point of view. Mm. I haven't had to go through a torturous review cycle. Three months or six months or twelve months or well, you know, there was a there was a fat, there was a really funny uh, tweet uh, a, a little while ago. A guy had submitted a paper, uh, a, a manuscript for publication, and the the journal had been sitting on it for ages. And then they, you know, they came back and they had all these problems, and he did the corrections, and they came back with more problems. Mm -hmm. And ten months had passed. Mm -hmm. Before and then they still hadn't made a decision. And in that time, his wife had had a baby. <laughs> so he he and his wife had created a new <laughs> life in the time that it took for this journal to to even get to a stage where they were, you know, ru ruminating on mm. his work. Yes, so quite the contrast. This is just completely ridiculous in this day and age. Mm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I guess that might require some some changes in the ways that uh, individual researchers and in universities are are rewarded and and funded. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're absolutely spot on. That um, if the the bedrock of not just the communication of science, but also the way in which universities value their staff. Uh, it's very much a case that we're judged by the number of papers we produce and the number of grants that we get in, mm. number of times we we get invited to speak at conferences and things. But there's no reason why the metrics by which we're judged can't change to mm. be things like how many people are citing your data, mm. how many people are going into your the data that you've collected and Putting that into the into the artificial intelligence algorithms because it's recognised that your data is the mm. highest quality in the world. Mm. You know, when people want data on how fat cells are behaving, they go to to guarantee mm. to get it. Mm. No, they don't, but I mean, <laughs> if they that's did, what we'd like to get that, to. But that's where you'd like to get to. So instead of people counting the publications. Yep. They're, they're counting how much the scientific community are trusting your data. How, what reputation do you have for having great data? Or maybe you don't collect data. Maybe what you do is you analyze the data. Mm -hmm. Your contribution to science is not that 
you you're collecting the information, but that you're making sense of it. Mm-hmm. And that again that could be valuable to because people. Because the classic the classic view of a scientist up until the last ten years or so has mm. been somebody that runs the whole package. They conceive the idea, they they write the grant, they they set up the experiments, they they get the data, they write up the data, they're responsible for the insight. Mm. It's the whole package. But there's no reason why in a more distributed sort of scientific endeavor, we can't all specialize in roles of you know, I'm brilliant at data collection. I'm brilliant at having ideas. I'm brilliant at making sense of, of putting together the data. Mm-hmm. There's just that's a different paradigm in these mm. contributions. I'm looking forward to seeing how the uh, the paradigm shifts and evolves uh, over time. We've we've probably run out of time. Yeah, uh, well, I'm afraid, but stuff there. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been fascinating. I'd like to end if I could. Um, you clearly care about and are interested in things beyond your own discipline. You're talking about reading nature papers about chess, um, uh, communication. How do you kind of follow the broader scientific endeavour? Uh, and I say that partly as someone who struggles to read what I think are the relevant papers in my field. And, uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Hamish. I'm probably the very last person to ask that because... Uh, I'm I not as a master then, but just I don't, as a fellow I don't have a strategy and my... <laughs> My general knowledge of what is happening out there is seriously underfoot. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't everyone's be though. It's it's just so hard to yeah, follow it all. But anyway, and, um, what what do you do? I, How do you I, I the think things? I think being in a vibrant uh, environment uh, where there are lots of pe- people with lots of different interests, um, having to teach students. Is, is another thing, um, having to be challenged to teach students in a variety of different discipline areas, um, no, recognising that the students that we teach now are not going to be specialised in the way that we have to be. Mm-hmm. They will actually be, the skills that they will need are much more on the synthesis and analysis front across discipline areas Mm. and so just being an open vessel and having good interesting people around you and listening to great podcasts (laughs) and going to great science events (laughs) in in pubs those are the those are the ways of doing it that's music to my ears All right, well, look, thanks very much again for your time, Gareth. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Science of the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com slash scienceofthelocal, and all good podcast providers. Science of the Local is not just a podcast. It's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. To find out more, go to facebook.com slash scienceatthelocal. Science at the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by Springwood and Winmalee Neighbourhood Centres, and in 2017 by the Inspiring Australia Program of the Australian Government. By listening to this podcast, you accept our end-user licence agreement. Science is real from the-